this week on the Digital Dust Podcast. Yeah, everything, it's... X-Men, X-Men. X-Jet? It is the best branding ever. It is like, I can't, I can't knock it, man. It's so good. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Digital Dust Podcast. My name is Liz. I'm Katie. And my name is Professor Charles Xavier, and I work uh, at a school for gifted youngsters in upstate New York in Westchester County. That was a really bad Patrick Stewart. I should have said my Can we go again? I'm Patrick Stewart. Patrick, there you go. But anyway, uh, if that intro doesn't give anything away, we are today going into a little bit of a deep dive into one of my very favorite topics of all time. Yeah, we're, we're returning to the well of superheroes mm-hmm. and superhero content and everything like that. And today I'm uh, bringing these folks along with me uh, to talk at length about the X-Men. Comic book team, the X-Men. I'm very excited. Are you guys excited? I'm hyped. For me, I'm not a huge superhero person in general, but like I think X-Men are probably sure. my favorite just because like that in terms of like the go. story and like the archetypes and all, mm-hmm. the, all the stuff. I love it. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear some more kind of cool stuff about it. For sure. And Katie, you told me before we started recording, you don't know much at all. I watched Days of Future Past and I hadn't What's seen... The, what a wild movie to start with. <laughs> That's, that is a... <laughs> yeah, but like that movie is canonically meant to clean up the first trilogy of movies and connect them to the more recent trilogy. Like it is it is the movie that you need to watch all the other movies to understand and you started with And yet it. here we were, started and finished. That's with great. It. You know, you know, hey, I that they don't get much better after that. Well, some of them. It's we're not here to talk the X-Men movies today. Uh, I could talk about that at like that other time. Some are shitty, some are great, some are just fine. It's a, a, a wide array of content in the X-Men franchise. But today, as a fabulous segue, uh, yeah, so we're, we're talking about X-Men, of course, but I thought, you know, I wanted to sort of ground our discussion in a particular X-Men related topic. And so what we're going to be talking about, of course, the thing that the X-Men are generally most sort of connected to, uh, particularly by people who, who aren't hardcore X-Men fans, like what everyone kind of knows about the X-Men, is their connection to themes of oppression and bigotry and all that all that sort of stuff. So that's what we're really going to be talking about today is the history of the X-Men and their relationship, particularly like the historical relationship between the X-Men and discrimination, bigotry, all that sort of stuff. Now, before we really get started, I, have one, I do want to point out like the X-Men are, I, I said this to you before we started recording, the X-Men are one of my if not my very favorite superhero IP, which is very strange because most people would say that my favorite superhero is Batman. And that makes sense because I generally say that my favorite superhero is Batman. And yet, after the, like, the last couple of years, I really thought about it a lot. And I mean, the X-Men have always been really near and dear to my heart. And I think just as an IP, like as like a, like a title, as opposed to a specific character even, just like X-Men stories are always my favorite. I really love the X-Men. They're so, so cool. Uh, and I'm really super duper excited to talk about them on this episode. So without further ado, we shall begin. So so diving into the episode, 
I, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a, a brief sort of synopsis of what we'll be talking about. I'll explain sort of where the episode came from and its focus. Uh, and then we're, we're going to dive in a little bit into the relationship generally, like sort of in terms of, I guess, theory or sort of headspace, uh, the relationship between X-Men and discrimination. I'm going to quickly talk about their origins in the 60s, their relaunch in the 70s. And the back half of the episode is going to actually be what I'm very, very excited about uh, on this podcast is going to be sort of a deep dive into a specific X-Men story. So I'm going to literally I'm going to tell you guys a story, a graphic novel from the X-Men. It's called God Loves, Man Kills. Ooh. And it is a, it is a, a very good story, a very intense and dark, but we'll get to it to sort of wrap up the conversation and as a specific example of the broader themes we'll be talking about in the first half of the episode so that's sort of where our trajectory is and i'm so excited so we're gonna get into it all right so so the reason behind this episode i want to give a bit of a trigger warning there will be a brief discussion about transphobic comments and a very harmful individual uh, that, that's the main trigger warning right now so just you know to let listeners know about that so the impetus behind this episode is that a few weeks ago, in early April of 2023, a congressman named Webster Barnaby made some really terrible comments in a hearing, I believe, uh, regarding the trans community. These comments uh, were while he was discussing a bill that he wants to have passed that essentially would make it illegal for trans folk to use washrooms that do not match the gender that they were assigned with at birth, um, which is incredibly terrible, obviously. And so while he was discussing this, he says the following quote. He says, I'm looking at society today, and it's like I'm watching an X-Men movie. When you're watching the X-Men movies, it's like we have mutants living among us on planet Earth. We have people that live among us today who are happy to display themselves as if they were mutants from another planet. Jesus Christ. Yeah. What? Yeah. So somebody actually said this in, I, I, I'm not sure if it was in like a like congressional hearing or if it was actually just on the floor of congress itself but a congressman said this while proposing or, or discussing a bill essentially and these were the comments that they chose and, and he said these comments while like countless trans activists were like literally in the room wow. and he said these things it was really really terrible and and so this is the thing for the rest of the episode i'm not going to talk about this guy i don't i don't he want this episode deserve- Exactly. Okay. I don't. Yeah. I don't want it to. I, I don't want the episode to be me refuting his claims, or I. I, I don't want to give him or what he said more space in the world than he already is given. But it did spark a thing. Uh, uh, rather, it, it did spark sort of the idea of what I did want to talk about, and so I. I want to instead use this opportunity to talk about the X Men and their connection to oppression, uh, persecution, and bigotry, and sort of emphasize, especially in the real world, emphasize our and our podcast support for trans folks and the trans community and that sort of thing. Because the trans folk, uh, the trans folk, what? No, the trans community. <laughs> the trans community is, is one part or one version of the allegory that the X-Men mm-hmm. are about mm-hmm. in terms of the X-Men's broader relationship with oppression so yeah. i think it's really important that, that that we sort of talk about that and it gives me an excuse not an excuse gives me a reason to talk about my very favorite superhero team of all time and so that's that so that's all that we're going to talk about about him there are countless articles that go into why what he said was really dumb the mutants are not from another planet for example <laughs> yeah. let me refute this claim with a little <laughs> you know history not history 
superhero <laughs> knowledge. Well, it's funny you say that because so so the the reason why I want to do this is that so many times as public historians we see politicians misuse history mm-hmm. to to argue their their points or their bills or whatever. And so now we have a point where for our public history podcast, it's like superhero history and pop culture, and it's it was a weird mixture of things that just got my brain thinking. And uh, this came episode came out of that. So that's where we're headed. I'm very excited. So now we're just going to sort of talk about the X-Men and their general connection to themes of, of oppression, persecution, bigotry, that sort of stuff. So to start off, especially for Katie's sake, even though I know you've seen one movie, where I'm just going to briefly explain who the X-Men are. So in terms of the comic books, the X-Men were first created and published in 1963. The team was created by Legends Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And when the team was created, they, it was created as a team book. And essentially what the X-Men are, are a team of mutants. And so mutants are, is literally the word given to anybody in the Marvel Universe who are born with their superpowers. So as opposed to getting them from some accident, some experiment, something else, okay. they are just born with their abilities. That's what makes you a mutant. And they're born with their abilities because there's something called the X gene that is sort of in their, their d- DNA genetic makeup. And the X gene essentially is a variant of what a human's genetic structure looks like. And so they are sort of a mutated version of humans with this new gene that gives them superpowers. Right. That's the, the science fiction-y explanation of, of who the X-Men are. So that's really broad strokes. That's what's up. That's who they are. Now, their, their relation to oppression is somewhat on the nose, but very apparent, regardless of, of how subtle the author tries to, to put it. So the themes of oppression is essentially that mutants are persecuted by humans. Humans are scared of mutants, and in their fear of the unknown, in their fear of whatever, they decide to persecute mutants. And that, that can be something as, as uh, microaggressive as sort of calling someone, or like, like sort of like saying like, oh, are you a mutant? Or like just sort of general dialogue you might have with someone. That can be something more like segregation, like, oh, we don't serve mutants at this bar you have to leave or different things like that sometimes it involves stories like where where the government creates these giant robots called sentinels and sentinels are huge mutant hunting robots that can scan for uh, someone's dna structure to see if they're a mutant and then apprehend them and literally put them into like like concentration camp spaces or whatever basically like the government would like like capture mutants and take them into camps and that sort of thing these are all different examples various stories the sentinels are a huge villain for the x-men throughout their entire comic history they were created in the 60s during the first decade so they're a mainstay villain of the team and even then with sentinels like the sentinels are used in different ways depending on the story like days of future past which katie mentioned earlier the sentinels literally are, are so vast in number that they like literally wipe out all of mutants and then go after humans next and so there's this dystopian future where it's actually the sentinels in charge and the humans and the mutants are both either captured or killed or whatever and that sort of thing i so. totally remember that yeah that's fine <laughs> Regardless, uh, so these are different ways that that the X-Men relate to oppression. Now, the one thing I did want to highlight that I thought was especially interesting is two... Well, there's a couple things. So the first thing is that the X-Men are best represented for themes of oppression when it's not a one-to-one ratio. 
when they're not trying to be civil rights or gay rights or anything like that. When, when it's just in a an allegory for oppression in general. That's when the, their stories are the best. There's something like like in the 90s, I think, they, they did something called the Legacy Virus, which was essentially AIDS. It was, it was the idea that like there was a virus that only mutants could get and and uh, and started wiping out the mutant population and whatever. And that was their attempt at trying to like do a one for one for something like AIDS. And it just didn't go well. It was clunky. It didn't really like get the message of AIDS right. <laughs> like in terms of what they were trying to do, it didn't really work <laughs> very well. Because well, it's also it, like it, it, not how oppression works. Exactly. Like oppression exactly. is systemic and multilateral and what i'm trying to think of the um intersectional there we go that was trying to yeah oh and so this is well so this is the thing this is what i I was going to say is that x-men work best as an intersection and you'll note when we talk about uh god love man god loves man kills later the the comic book it's 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 interesting to see mutants who are also black women or mutants who are also gay, or like different things like that, or or a mutant who's who's speaking to a black person about oppression, and and you like start to see how, in the Marvel universe, being a mutant is just another wedge in your intersectional identity that that is based in some form of oppression, and that's when the stories are more nuanced and more interesting and that sort of thing. So that's one thing I wanted to mention. The other thing I wanted to mention is I think the X Men offer a really interesting way to think about the the sort of relationship between biology and social construction in terms of oppression and like i we do not have the time today for me to do this as much justice as i want as i want to so it's going to be a little briefer than i'd like but essentially the idea is that idea or I'm sorry, identities are socially constructed. So like blackness is a social construction. Gayness is a social construction and that sort of thing where like the sort of biological attribute of like, oh, you have a darker skin tone or, you know, you, you, your sex drive is sort of ignited by someone who shares the same gender as you do. Like those sort of biological components are not the only criteria for the identity. Right. And it, like like essentially to get into that is is going to be very complicated. I have one pretty solid example where there are countless gay men in the world who have mar- like fallen in love with and married women and have had children and then later in life come out as gay. And in that instance, they identify as gay. They would not identify as straight. And so they've had sex with a woman, but they identify as gay. Right. So it's like the the biological component does not make the identity. The identity is the social construction of what what you identify as and that sort of thing. And that like uh, gay men in that situation would were sort of likely pressured by social pressures, by this like the, the social construction of heteronormativity, the social construction of straightness to marry women and have kids and that sort of thing. So the idea is that these are all sort of social identities that have biological markers that can help you identify the identity, but the biological marker is not the thing that relates to the identity. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so what's 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 interesting about the X-Men and mutants in general is that they have a very they have a far larger or more prominent, I would say, biological connection than real world uh, uh, allegories in that they are literally the next stage in human evolution like that is what they are you know is that one day it will just be mutants like we will all have mutated into mutants 
uh, at the end of the day. I can't day. wait for that day. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, right? It'd be pretty rad to have superpowers. That'd be awesome. I've been waiting a while. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, but yeah, so so that, that, that's the idea, is that like they have a, a very strong biological component to themselves. And so this... It, it At first, I think, or I, I thought, that like maybe the, con- the comparison isn't as strong because for mutants, it is more about biology than it is about social construction. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out how to, how to sort of remedy this. And then I thought it was something fucking nuts. And this is, this is, this is, this is what it is. The X-Men operate in the Marvel universe. The Marvel comics universe is like the MCU, a shared universe. That means that X-Men and X-Men comics take place in the same universe as the Avengers, as Fantastic Four, as Spider-Man, as whatever. And so there has been like a, like a, like a joke almost among X-Men fans for a very long time, which is, okay, why are the X-Men oppressed, but Spider-Man praised? Why, like, why, why do people love the Avengers and Captain America and root for a literal monster who can destroy your whole building or home or whatever? Don't and, talk about the and Hulk are like scared, that. Right? <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I'm sorry, but but are scared of someone who can move metal. Like like what like, where's the disconnect? Like rather, there is a disconnect. Like make sense of it, please. And so here's here's what I think is really interesting. In a shared universe, what makes the X Men different and mutants different is that they're mutants. And mm-hmm. so now suddenly we have a socially constructed identity that didn't exist before that has biological markers that might be more prominent than some of the bio- biological markers in our world or, or whatever, but there's still a massive social component to it. There's a great Spider-Man, the animated series episode from the 1990s where he, if, I do not, it doesn't matter why, but he's turning into a giant mutant spider. And when he's turning into a giant mutant spider, he goes to professor X for help because professor X is the like world expert on genetics. And he goes and he's like, help me figure out how to not, not to be a giant mutant spider anymore. And professor X is like, Oh wow. Or one of the X-Men is like, Oh wow. Or like, are you a mutant or something? And there's literally a moment where Spider-Man's like, Whoa, Whoa. Hey now, <laughs> Hey, I, I'm not a mutant. Don't no. Wow. Not that there's anything wrong with mutants, but I'm not one. <laughs> Like he actually has one of those moments, right? Which I think, like, like regardless of how good writing that is or not, I think that really exemplifies this point I'm trying to make, where like there is a a, a social identity piece of calling yourself a mutant that matters because if there are no other superheroes and you're a mutant and humans are afraid of you, it, like they could just be afraid that you have superpowers. So an, another example is that there's like there's this scene in X Men One. Uh, the first X-Men movie where Senator Kelly, who's like a, a, a awful X-Men villain, he hates mutants and he works with the government and he, he tries to get laws passed to hurt them and that sort of thing. Senator Kelly is on the floor of Congress and he's talking about a mutant registration act. He wants to register mutants, get their names and powers on a list so the government can track them and that sort of thing. And while he's making this argument to Congress, he says, he, he's like, you know, there's a mutant out there in the United States who can walk through walls. Now what stops her from walking into the White House or to any of your houses? And that sort of thing, right? And so he, he, he gives that example in that moment. And in, in the context of that scene, since the Fox X-Men movies don't have any crossover with other superheroes, you can have this moment of like, you can read that scene as just a guy who's very terrified by the existence of superpowers. That like, it, it they're mutants, sure, but in that context because it's just mutants at that point the oppression comes from the fact that they have superpowers not from the fact that they're mutants right right 
And so when they're in a shared universe with all the other superhero teams and stuff, it's a really neat way of being like, okay, this is, it's a social identity piece. It's that there's, they're scared of mutants because they're mutants. They persecute mutants because they're mutants, not because they have superpowers. And that gives you this, this sort of social constructed connection to the biology. And I just thought that was really neat. And I think the X-Men is a, like, to talk about the X-Men's connection to oppression, I think there are really fantastic ways that you can really, like, look at these themes with, uh, with all the stories that have already been created. I think it's really rad. So that's, that's the general overview of, of the X-Men's connection to oppression in sort of a theoretical sense. Uh, that's, that, that is the, the, the most mind-bendy part of this episode. I promise that's all over now. <laughs> So let's get into the origin of the X-Men proper. So the X-Men started in the 1960s, in 1963. And I'm going to blow your mind with a couple weird-ass things here, based on what we've just been talking about. The X-Men, upon their creation, if we're talking about the history of oppression in its connection to X-Men, the X-Men, upon its origin, had no connection to oppression. Like, when they were created, they were not necessarily meant to be an allegory for anything hmm. yeah because so here's 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 the story that stanley tells about the creation of the x-men he's like okay so it's 1963 i've already created spider-man the hulk the fantastic four and the, the the comic book reading public is like hungry for more superheroes i gotta i gotta make more superheroes i gotta figure this shit out i gotta make another superhero book what am i gonna do and he's like well i've already done cosmic rays i've already done gamma rays i've already done radioactive spiders what else what else is there for me to do because yeah <laughs> exactly and, and in his mind he's like because if i do one of those again they're not gonna go for it and so i need to come up with something new right and like and he's like what the heck i want this to be a team book and so there's like five members of this team so now not only do i have to come up with an origin i have to come up with five origins i don't know what i'm going to do and then he's like hang on a second what if in this way it would connect the whole team under one origin story what if they were all just born with their powers then maybe i wouldn't have to come it. up with an origin maybe, <laughs> maybe it's maybelline <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's M men. Okay, that all right. Anyway, um, but yeah, so he, yeah, there you go. That that's better. That works. <laughs> so so the X Men were created as literally sort of a lazy moment where Stan had a deadline and he needed to come up with a new origin story, and so he just decided let's just make them let's just make them born with their powers. That'll be easy, and then I can just decide what powers I want to give them, and 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 that's that. And so that that is the origin of the X-Men. Like, if we're talking about where the X-Men came from, they had no connection to oppression. It was really just laziness and a deadline or or sort of a need to meet a deadline even and that sort of thing. And, they were, and like, this is represented in the first issue. Like, in the very first issue of the book, the X-Men stop Magneto, who is trying to blow up a military base using missiles. He, like, controls the missiles with his magnet powers and then tries to blow up a, a military base. The X-Men stop him, and at the very end, either the general or one of the soldiers says the following. He, he says, You call yourselves the X-Men. I will not ask you to reveal your true identities, but I promise you that before this day is over, the name X-Men will be most honored in my command. So at the, at the end of their first episode, they have like a representative of the government saying, X-Men, cool in my books. <laughs> and, and, and that is so different from the vibe of most X-Men stories, right? And so it's very clear that when, when the team started, 
they were just meant to be another superhero team who wore bombastic costumes, went on highfalutin adventures, and and looked good doing it. And, and that was really, that's really all it was, right? And so that so so it's neat. So it's like so where did oppression come from in the X Men then? Like how did we get to this point where the X Men, as Liz was mentioning, in terms of why it's one of her favorites, like where. Where do we find the X-Men become synonymous with stories about oppression and, and resistance? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you in, in general, it is a process. Throughout the 60s, it, it starts to be seeded, but it seems far more like a plot point than like an actual like driving force of the team. It's like like it's like an if-then argument. Like if they're bored with their powers, then maybe we could make a, a story where the some humans are are scared of them and then try and attack them, and that'll create drama and a narrative and whatever. But it, it seems more like a plot point when it is discussed in the '60s rather than an actual sort of like hardcore thing that that exists within the team's identity. Now, what's really interesting is that, like, while saying that, I do want to point out there was there was a YouTube video I watched a couple days ago. It was really interesting, and there's this fellow on there. He says that he's Jewish. And he talks about how Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are Jewish creators. And he explained that in his experience being Jewish, there's a weird sort of closeted feel to it where you're white, but once people learn this like sort of semi-invisible, semi-secret thing about you, they start treating you differently racially at that point and that sort of thing. And what's really interesting is that the original five X-Men members are all white. They're all drawn beautifully. Like, they look like beautiful human. Like, they don't look grotesque in any way or anything like that. And and so it seems like a lot of the oppression that was present in the 60s seems to be really sort of rooted in, likely anyway, in the identities of the two Jewish authors who were writing from more of a Jewish perspective in terms of like these beautiful white teenagers who once you learn that they have this sort of secret thing about them and their identity, then you start treating them differently. Mm-hmm. So overall, uh, those are some just sort of interesting points about the 60s X-Men. And, and, and overall, in the 60s, the civil rights movement was still happening and was sort of at its height for a lot of the 60s. And so there were definitely civil rights elements in the book. And there were de- it was definitely like two guys, try- two white guys trying to write about the civil rights movement and sort of teach white male readers about civil rights and depression and that sort of thing. But it just, it seemed more like an afterthought or more of a tacked on thing on occasion than an actual like aspect of the story. So that's the 60s. And the last, the, 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 the interesting little thing as we move into the 70s, really, really wild. Throughout the 60s, the book didn't sell well. X-Men was not a prize book of Marvel. It was like at the bottom rung. It was like people did not like it. People didn't buy it at all. Jack Kirby and Stan Lee only stayed on the book for the first like couple years, I think. And then it started being handed off to different writers until the the end of its run in 1969. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, so they tried doing different things. They tried, they, they killed Professor Xavier partway through the 60s. They, yeah, they gave, they gave each member individual looking costumes. They started off with like a team costume. Everyone wore the same outfit, but then they sort of tried to individualize the costumes. They tried to break up the team. And so they'd have issues that only focused on like Cyclops and Jean Grey and then only on Iceman and different things like that. So, like, they were trying everything they could to keep the book running, but it just it just kept getting worse and worse, and sales kept declining, so much so that the book was cancelled. Like, X-Men was cancelled six years after it was created. 
And so from 1969 until 1975, so between like five and six years almost, the X-Men, any new issue of the X-Men that you would pick up would just be reprints of the previous book or of, of previous issues. It would just be like essentially reruns for like five or six years, which is wild because the X-Men, especially when you get to the 80s and 90s, X-Men is outselling everything. Spider-Man's pretty close, but X-Men is like the thing. Like Marvel's driving force is X-Men by the, the 80s and 90s. So it's wild to think that like its origin in the 60s, it just tanked so bad. This is pretty pretty crazy. So as we and so as we move from the 60s into the 70s, we have the 70s relaunch, which took place around 1975. And here's where, if, if you're listening and you're an X-Men fan, we're talking about Chris Claremont. We're talking about Len Wein. We're talking about Dave Cockrum. We're talking about, like, are if you are an X-Men fan or characters? Or I just need to know. Writers. Okay. Well, Chris Claremont's a writer. Uh, oh, oh, I'm going to get dinged for this. I believe Len Wein is also a writer and Dave Cockrum is, a, is an artist. Okay, but, but they're I'm all like, creators. I might have had that Roger that. They're all creators. Yes, yes, yes. Cool. I apologize. Yes, no, thank you. Okay. They are all creators. But yeah, so if you're an X-Men fan listening to this and you hear me say those names, you're like, oh, fuck yeah. Like, let's go. This is this is when X-Men matter. Like, literally, Chris Claremont especially breathes life into the X-Men that never existed before. For some context, the original X-Men team from the 60s had a few well-known characters like Professor X and Cyclops and Jean Grey, whom you, you you might know, but it had lesser-known characters like Beast and Iceman and Angel. Those were the, the other sort of mainstay X-Men characters in the 60s. The 70s, this baby, the 70s, this is, this is where we get lesser, somewhat lesser known. We get Colossus, which you might know from the, the Deadpool movies. We get Nightcrawler. Uh, who's like like a like a, a blue fuzzy devil looking guy is like a forked tail and as he's like an acrobat from the circus uh, and of course of course you get storm and you get wolverine oh, and so Wolverine's the, an the 70s Whoa. <laughs> they yeah yeah i think i've seen the wolverine sarcastic? movie i think i saw the wolverine movie guys Oh my god, Wolverine is the most famous X-Man in existence. Yes, he's too famous to be associated with the (laughs) X-Men. That's true, he has had a lot of solo series, that is true. In any case, but this is where we get, like, the X-Men that you know and love. We bring back Cyclops and Jean Grey and Professor X because they did well. Eventually the other original X-Men will show up every so often, but the mainstay team, plus or minus a, a few other individuals who are, who are lesser known who sort of come in and out themselves as well the mainstay team includes these these figures so that's your new x-men like the like he comes out with like this book with all of the x-men that you know and love and it's incredible and people latch on immediately chris claremont is like famous iconic for uh, uh for creating some of the most famous x-men comics of all time iconic you might say in any case that's a bad pun we're moving on in, in 1980, he's responsible for the Dark Phoenix saga, which is perhaps one of the most famous X-Men stories of all time, been, been adapted to film twice in X-Men 3 The Last Stand and X-Men Dark Phoenix. And of course, in 1981, he wrote Days of Future Past, which was adapted into a movie in 2014, I believe. And so like, he is the guy. He, like, he fucking revitalized X-Men like nobody's business. And in his revitalization, he was responsible essentially for like putting forward like the, the the sort of 
the loose threads that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby left in the 1960s X-Men about oppression and how humans don't really like them that much and that sort of thing. Those little loose threads that, that were there, Chris Claremont, like, grabbed and pulled. <laughs> and and so, like, Chris Claremont, when he starts writing X-Men, it is, it is connected to their identity. Like, it is just a part of the X-Men lore in a way that it wasn't in the 60s, this, this connection to oppression. Days, Days of Future Past is a great example of that sort of story with the Sentinels that eventually, as I said before, kidnap and, and essentially eliminate all mutants on the Earth and everything like that. And It's like a dystopian future. So he's he's responsible for all this sort of stuff. I have a, a, a quote from a, a I suppose you, you, you would call him an historian of sorts, he, a, a book called All the Marvels. And in his X-Men chapter, he says, the, the Claremont team's smartest innovation on X-Men was that they began to take proper advantage of the metaphor that had been built into the series all along, mutants as the despised and oppressed other. So unlike Lee and Kirby, Claremont infused the theme into X-Men and bringing a level of immersive drama to the book that lacked uh, in its first de uh, decade or so. And so that's sort of where we see uh, oppression begin to really take a huge impact into the book. So if we're looking at the history of, it, of the X-Men's connection to themes of oppression, it's sort of there in the 60s, not really. And then when, it's get, when it gets picked up after it was canceled, it starts to be infused further. And, and literally just as Claremont goes on, it gets more and more involved. And then eventually other artists and, and, and writers and creators in general pick up that theme as well. Like there's like... Claremont created a group called the Morlocks in, in the X-Men continuity, and the Morlocks are a group of mutants who all have very disgusting-looking mutant abilities. Like, they have, like, five eyes, or, like, like, they look repulsive, essentially. And they live in the sewers. And the whole, the whole point... Yeah, yeah, the whole point of the Morlocks are, like... The whole point of the Morlocks are, like, all you X-Men can pass. Like, all of you can pretend to be human and no one... You look at me and you know I'm a mutant. And and they're never going to accept me. And so, like, we built our own community in the sewers and that sort of thing. So the Morlocks start there. When you get to the 2000s and comic book writer Grant Morrison comes in with a new version of X-Men. Uh, Grant Morrison is they, them pronouns. So if you confuse why I start saying they, that's why. So Grant Morrison comes in and... And what they do is they, they essentially take the concept of the Morlocks and, and essentially revitalize it for the present moment. And so suddenly you have, like, mutant subcultures in New York City who are, like, you have, like, like fashion designers who are, like, designing for people with horns on their head and, like, different things like that and, and light shows and, and different like sort of, like, art districts. Like, it, it, it literally becomes its own subculture to be a mutant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be like, like I, I'm a mutant and you don't like me, but I'm not going to go live in the sewer. I'm going to say fuck you and just make my own, sort of carve out my own area of the world and that sort of thing. So as we won't get into it because obviously this is just one episode, but like as the X-Men progress past the 70s and 80s, past the Claremont period and era, the, it only gets bigger. Like it, like it only starts to become more and more a part of the X-Men identity uh in 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 all their stories and everything it leaks into the movies and it, it like even in the present there are there are those themes always going on in x-men comics so that's that's your general overview of the history of of oppression in x-men and so instead of sort of going like decade by decade and continuing this trend i wanted to do something really fun and tell you guys an x-men story so this x-men story is called god loves man kills it was written in 1982 
seven years from when Claremont began writing X-Men stories. And it is, so it is written by Chris Claremont. So this is a Chris Claremont classic. It, it, it's really rad. It's full of so many speech bubbles and thought balloons. Chris Claremont is nothing if not a very dramatic writer. And so a lot of, like, it's very extra. Uh, I should I should point out that, of course, not all of the X-Men stories were about oppression. Claremont is responsible for the X-Men, like, going to space and meeting the Shi'ar Empire. And, like, uh, the Dark Phoenix saga is, like, a cosmic entity that that infuses itself in Jean Grey and and all these different things. It's, like, like it's soapy. People love the X-Men because it's, like, a soap opera meets teen trauma. And it's it's... It's so good. Like, it's like the interpersonal relationships between the X-Men is one of the best reasons uh, for the book's existence. It, it's incredible. But in any case, in addition to those things, Chris Claremont in 82 wrote this graphic novel, God Loves, Man Kills. So before I start reading, or not reading, before I start uh, uh, summarizing it for you, uh, there are a few triggers. So some of the triggers for uh, audience members and for you too as well, I should point out, there is a little bit of child murder there is there are some intense themes about oppression discrimination themes of genocide and <laughs> themes or like sort of mutant versions of like racial epithets and that sort of thing and some some allusion to lynching so those are the the big trigger warnings completely understandable if you have to stop watching or or sort of skip to the very end of the episode that that's understandable. I'll also mention it right before it happens, uh, sort of the, the, the trigger warning again, so that it's not going to jump out as we're as as I'm going through it. But that's that. That that th those are the the trigger warnings. So here we go. I'm excited. This is so fun. Story time. So God loves man kills. God loves man kills is a Marvel's attempt to try and do a graphic novel. So originally this story was actually outside of continuity instead of being like just issues of the X-Men that were bound together as one story. They were like, let's put out a, a specific book written by amazing X-Men writer Chris Claremont and, and have it be its own sort of darker, grittier story about the X-Men. So that's what... So is a graphic novel just a longer comic? It, it really depends. It's, this is, it's, okay. yeah, it, it really depends on what's going on. Some of them are. Some of them are like their own solo books that are, are graphic novels. Sometimes graphic novels are created from miniseries. So, like, you would have, like, five or six issues that would eventually be, like, brought together into a graphic novel. Sometimes graphic novel okay, is just cool. shorthand for a very famous story from the main comic line that, like, just became a thing. Like, if, if like, a, a Spider-Man story, if a Spider-Man story is particularly famous and it's, like, Amazing Spider-Man issues 600 through 608 or whatever, and then they take those issues and put them into a book, some people might call that a graphic novel it like it's it's a very fluid term, but uh, this in in this case, what graphic novel means is yes, they were trying to create something outside of the X Men comic title that would come out monthly or whatever at that point. Eventually, as with all comic books, uh, there it's definitely like well, it's, it's, it's kind of in con. If we want it to be, it'll be in continuity because it's a really good story, and we don't want to like not use it because it's so good and so like so it, it also has that element of is and it's a very common thing in comics where they will take a graphic novel and then just sort of put it into the continuity because it, it performed well or it was a good story but in any case yes so so that's where we're at god loves man kills and and yeah okay so god loves man kills opens with a prologue now in this prologue is where we find our first triggers particularly the child murder and the uh, lynching. 
So the story opens with two African-American kids running, two black kids running through their schoolyard. And the there's their siblings. One's an older brother, 11. The other's a younger sister's nine. And they're running through the schoolyard. And the sister's like, can't we go? Like, like, can't we find mom and dad for help? And the older brother says they can't help us anymore. And they're running through the, the schoolyard. And then all of a sudden, there's like the, the onomatopoeia blam. And you see the older brother sort of like bent over a little bit. And it, uh, on the next panel, you essentially learn, oh, there are people chasing these two kids with guns. The person shot the 11-year-old. He's now dead in the playground. And the little girl is like, why are you doing this? What's going on? And they essentially, what is revealed is that you have these people who call themselves mutant hunters. They're, uh, well, so they're mutant hunters. They go under the name, the purifiers. That's the, the name of the sort of mutant hunter group. They're the purifiers. And, and yeah, yeah. And so they, they found these two little kids, killed their parents, and essentially chased the two kids who ran away from the home and killed both of them as well because they are mutants and so this is what we sort of learn is like okay these two kids are mutants and they were killed for being mutants by the purifiers this is also where we meet one of the mainstay villains who's sort of the right hand to the main villain so the, the her name of all things is Anne. <laughs> you know which i think like in some ways is kind of clever because it's just like it's just like a, a she's just a person like the purifiers are just people and that's what's really scary is mm-hmm. that it's just it's just people who like literally see mutants as problematic enough to to murder them so in any case so these two children are are killed and at that point they essentially are there's like a sign that is put on both of their bodies on both of their chests as they're sort of chained up and the sign says the word muty which is essentially in this world a racist epithet. Yeah, okay. some sort of a slur for the word mutant. If you're a mutie, you're like, oh, God. You know. Could you, like, at least come up with a better one? <laughs> like, can we get a little kind yeah, of little up lame. in here? Yeah, yeah. So, and then what they do, so again, the trigger warning here, what they do is they, they sort of chain these two kids up onto the swing set and essentially hang them, basically. Oh and so I don't think it's accidental that Chris Claremont chose to have the two kids be black and to have them be hung from the swing set for all the children to see and be made an example of the next morning, basically, when, when the kids would go to school. So that's, that's sort of the opening. One, uh, the, the first part of the opening prologue is this very grotesque scene. We learn who the purifiers are and we get a very good idea of how dark this book is going to be and, and, and the serious themes that it's going to tackle. So at this point, Magneto shows up, and Magneto essentially is he a villain before or a, morning. A good person. Magneto, in general, it, it's really hard to decide for him. He he's he's a very interesting villain. So he's a villain, yeah. but he's a very interesting villain because he sometimes teams up with the X Men, which spoilers will happen in this book. Uh, he's going to team up with the X Men, uh, but kind of like an anti-hero yeah and it's it's really more about it's it's more instead of villain he's more of like a different ideology than charles right. in terms of mutant human relations. and they were like bfs his, once right they were they were best friends it's it's one of the coolest relationships in all of comics because they used to be best friends but charles believes that humans and mutants can coexist and magneto because he's a holocaust survivor believes that, that humans yes that that humans are inherently 
oppressive and awful and will never be able to accept mutants. And so the only way to stop millions of mutant, innocent mutants from dying at the hands of oppression is to kill the humans first. Or to do different things to bring about a world of, of mutants, basically, instead. And so because he's a villain written by like a company that is capitalistic and involved in oppression itself. It's kind of the thing of like, like in our own headcanon, Magneto can make a lot of sense, but like at the end of the day, he will always be treated a little supremacist E okay. to make sure that we remember right. he's the villain. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. it's a little propaganda like, which is really unfortunate, but the X-Men writers try their best to, to sort of make Magneto as interesting and relatable and agreeable as possible in terms of his ideology. Sometimes it doesn't work, though. In any case, here in this scene, he essentially, uh, he finds the the kid mutants before morning and he brings them down to the ground. Um, and he says some, some, you know, really important lines. He says, like, not the first, far from the last, only this time the victims are children. So young, so innocent to know such terror and pain, their only crime that they had been born as he's sort of talking to himself, as he's lift, using his metal powers to lift them off the swing set and everything. And it's it's sort of a moment where he's like, I'm going to make these fuckers pay. Like, I'm going to, I'm going after the purifiers. They're, they're dead. <laughs> like, these guys are done. Exactly. And, and, uh, and it's this moment of like, yeah, like this is, it's, it's because it's a graphic novel, it doesn't necessarily have to be as kid friendly. And so Claremont can be like, in, in a world where the mutants exist with oppression, children are gonna die and that's very terrible and sad as it is in our real world like like kids die for just being born and how how awful and horrible is that and so it's it's dark but really powerful um and something that i i appreciate trying to take the time to do basically so after this we are then met rather we then meet the main villain at the end of the prologue his name is william Stryker, and you might I'm not sure if either of you would, but some of the, the listeners might recognize the name William Stryker as the main villain from the second X-Men movie. And it, it is actually true. The second X-Men movie is almost verbatim this book in a lot of ways, except it, it ties more strongly between Wolverine's origin and, and William Stryker, where it, and William Stryker in the movie is like a politician, military guy. Whereas in this, this comic book, William Stryker is like a televangelist, religious fundamentalist. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's a way better yeah. villain. Yeah. So so the main villain, William Stryker, Reverend William Stryker, is like a Bible-thumping televangelist who is publicly in charge of a group called Stryker's Crusade and who privately and secretly is the leader and funder of the Purifiers. And so we meet our, our big bad guy, and he's like sort of speaking religious rhetoric as he's just sort of in his office. He's like speaking Bible quotes and shit, and it's, it's all very villainous and stuff. And then he sort of goes through the different X-Men abilities and he's like, ah, yes, not long from now, the X-Men like will be destroyed. And, and like they, them as like mainstays of the mutants and, and like sort of people who are very powerful versions of the general idea I fight against will be destroyed and I will destroy them. Ah, ha, ha. And it's all very spooky and scary and he's very creepy. So that's, that's the, the prologue. We then have, uh, we move into chapter one of four. So chapter one, so, okay, in the book, we have six members of the X-Men. We have Cyclops, whose powers are optic blasts. He basically shoots almost, like, for lack of a better term, they're lasers. They're not actually lasers, don't at me. But they're basically lasers. He shoots lasers from his eyes. 
and he can't control it, uh, so he has to have a visor, a special visor that like blocks the 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 blast from coming out of his eyes, and he like essentially has a button on his on his temple that like opens the visor and lets the blast out, and so it's one visor, so he's called Cyclops because he's like one eye. So that's Cyclops. Storm controls the weather, so she has like lightning powers, wind powers, cold powers, like like anything you can think of that way. She's very cool, incredibly powerful. She's like considered like a pagan god back in Nigeria where she's from. You have Wolverine, whose powers are healing. He has a healing factor. He can heal from any, anything. He can basically not die because of this. Like, he can take any damage and sustain it. He has uh, extreme senses, so he can sense anything from anywhere away. He can smell, hearing, that sort of thing. He has really enhanced senses. And finally, of course, most famously, he has the claws that come out of his knuckles. And they're covered in metal because his body is coated in adamantium, the strongest metal on Earth, even stronger than vibranium, which is Captain America's shield adamantium is canonically the strongest metal on earth and and so originally he had bone claws but when his skeleton had was like was coated by adamantium the bone claws became metal claws oh so th- well that's so cool so if you took it off it would actually be like yeah bone. exactly oh, yeah so nasty Whoa, so- yeah cool yeah i didn't know that. yeah so there you go so that's so that's wolverine we have colossus whose power is coating his whole body in metal so he's like a big super strong russian guy and he like literally just like turns his whole body into like a metal man version like a tin man kind of version of himself then we have nightcrawler of course whose main power is teleportation but he is also pretty acrobatic and sort of climb walls and that sort of thing but he mainly teleports and then we have kitty pride who is normally normally has the code name shadow cat but in this book for whatever reason she has the, the code name ariel i'm sure there is a reason i just don't know it off by hand or off, off the top of my head so shadow cat's ability or ariel's ability is to phase through objects so she can like literally like walk through walls she's actually the person that in that example from the first x-men movie they're they're talking about yeah they're talking about kitty pride and so uh so she can walk through walls or walk through anything she can go under the earth and like swim through the earth and pop up somewhere somewhere else like she can phase through oh that sounds so it's, fun the x-men have the coolest powers they're That's rad so i cool. love them anyway we're continuing so the chapter opens with sort of like a dance studio in new york and it opens with like a crash as like this this guy essentially is being pushed out of this dance studio with Kitty Pride on top of him, like punching him in the face, being like, take it back, like take back what you said. You shouldn't have said that, whatever. Like punching the hell out of this guy. Uh, they they fight for a bit and eventually Colossus tries to break it up and the, the ballerina who owns the studio eventually comes out to, uh, the ballerina is a black woman and which will be important in a moment. And uh, essentially, long story short, we learned that this guy said that he and his family supported the Striker Crusade and that he didn't like muties. And he said the word mutie and she was, she essentially was like, like, you shouldn't say that word. Don't say it. Like, like, why would you say something so terrible? They defuse the situation and the guy runs away. And as they console Kitty, the ballerina essentially says something along the lines of like it's it, they're just words like it you're you're okay like it's just words and kitty turns around and shouts it at at her suppose he called me an end lover would you be so damn tolerant then which is like a moment of like like there is space for debate here because chris claremont is i mean he he's, he's jewish so he has a version of of racial oppression that he deals with of course but he, he is uh a white man writing this book. And so like, there is a debate of like, is that something for him to include in this story? However, I do think it's rather tactful in terms of like, they, they like, they, they do like a, what would you call long it? Like, dash. A, like an M dash. It's really, not, really long. Not even, no, it's, it's like, it's like white out, but black, whatever you, I forget. Like a, like a redacted thing. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, so... Which infers that it, it's up there underneath. Uh, yeah, kind of, exactly. Which is interesting, too. Yeah, yeah, very, absolutely, very interesting. So in any case, it, it is an interesting moment as well that's just sort of, like, sort of push further this idea of, of, of how mutants deal with oppression, what it means, and sort of, like, for readers to be like, oh, 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 yeah, okay. Like, like just sort of reinforcing the idea of, like, what you call people and what you say to people has consequences and that sort of thing which i think is a, a neat way to sort of like ingrain that in, in the minds of readers and that sort of thing so that's the first main scene uh she and colossus decide to return to the x mansion and we pull back and it's revealed that there's a van that was right outside the ballerina uh, studio that is filled with purifiers and they follow kitty pride and colossus back to the x mansion very slow x mansion <laughs> yeah everything it's x X-Men, X-Men. X-Jet? Just... Like, literally any... Wow. Yeah, no. Any a opportunity they have is... A, like, the, like words like extreme are spelled extreme. Like, it is Aww. it is the best branding ever. It is like, I can't, I can't knock it, man. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, totally. Aww. It's really stupid at the same time, but it's so good and cheesy. I love it. In any case, yes. So they go back to the X-Mansion. And while, like upon their return, you meet we meet the other X Men. They have sort of conversations with each other, and it is revealed that Professor X is currently not in the mansion, for he is going down to ABC Studios to <laughs> have <Sorry>. a. <laughs> I know they use like real names and stuff. He goes to he's going he's going down to ABC in New York in New York City because he has a televised debate with a mutant hater named William Stryker. <gasps> And they're going to have a televised debate and talk about mutant rights and that sort of thing. And and they're all like, okay, all right. Uh, we all got to watch and sit down. So they get their popcorn and literally like sit down watching watching Professor X on TV. And there are some, there's a few interesting quotes. One in particular from Pro Professor X that I want to highlight where he says, Firstly, mutants per se are not a monolithic group possessing one set of attitudes or goals. They are individuals, as are we all, and should not, uh, should be judged as such. So it's it's a neat moment because you don't often see this in sort of pop culture or just like the way that people generally think. In that, like he's trying to say, like like not all mutants or you know insert oppressed group here, not all mutants share the same goals, share the same ideology. Hashtag not all mutants. Yeah, <laughs> but like actually, right? Like it, it it gives this really neat sort of complexity to the idea where it's like like some mutants believe something, some mutants believe others. We're we're people. We just happen to have superpowers. Like we're we're just like anybody else, and I think that's a really neat thing because often, obviously, groups like like black folks or queer folks are often sort of monotonously like tied to the very same thing. Like we talk about them as a whole, as a collective, as opposed to individuals. It's like you, this is this is your experience, so you must believe this. And it's like no, like that doesn't define my entire life. Exactly, <laughs> it's just a part of me exactly yeah. so overall by the end of it we learned that professor x did not do as well as as striker did in terms of the whole debate and interview and stuff and mutant anti-mutant sentiment is rising and that's frustrating for the x-men so we have this really cool scene where they all are like you know what let's gear up and go into the danger room and have a bit of a training session for those who don't know the danger room is an iconic thing in x-men it's like a simulation room like they simulate it's 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 whatever your mind can think of it's very futuristic very sci-fi but like it simulates environments and bad guys and and different things like that and it's a way for the x-men to train together use their powers figure out ways to use their powers like combine in, in combos and ways that work off each other and that sort of thing 
and it's called the danger room and so they, they go they suit up into their awesome x-men outfits and they go to the danger room and they fight each other and it's a whole thing and so then that goes on for a couple of pages i won't i won't get too much into I, the it tiger is playing yeah in the oh and it's so good yeah. like i i don't have time to talk about it but it's so good and i highly recommend anyone just read it. it's it's like it's great too because it's like this calm before the storm like we know bad shit is coming we know like we saw kids die at the beginning of this thing we know bad things are coming and yet like we spend four pages just watching the x-men fight in the danger room and it's like it's freaky and you're like, like, guys, like something bad's about to happen. And indeed, something does bad bad does happen. We we learn that essentially Stryker knows that Charles Xavier is a mutant and that he's planning an attack on the X-Men. And we see Charles Xavier in his like Rolls Royce <laughs> with uh, with Cyclops and Storm. So Cyclops and Storm joined him at the, or sort of escorted him to the ABC studios. And on their way back to the X Mansion, they're driving their car, and suddenly a missile <laughs> like blasts into the car and blows it up. And we see the X Men trying to like pull themselves out of it, only to get shot, uh, like like by people with like machine guns and stuff. And the chapter ends with Nightcrawler answering the phone at the X Mansion, and he says, "Like, oh, it's the police. Like, Professor X, Storm, and Cyclops are dead." And that's where that chapter ends. Yeah, there's it's so okay. We'll get into this in a moment because uh, chapter two then begins with a scene where Kitty is left alone at the X Mansion. She's sort of grieving. Uh, another person at the mansion is Colossus's younger sister named Iliana, who I don't believe is a mutant herself, but she just chills there. And so they're sort of talking about grief and they're like, oh my God, I'm so sad that they're all dead and I don't know what to do. The two of them have been left at the X-Mansion while the other X-Men, that's Colossus, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler go to scout out the crime scene at Central Park where presumably Professor X, Cyclops, and Storm were, were killed. So while Kitty and Ileana are just sort of hanging out, they're on the, the, at the outside of the grounds and they see like some weird sort of sensor system set up that is unfamiliar to them on the grounds of the X-Mansion. And they're like, oh shit, like what the fuck is this? So Shadowcat, or I'm sorry, Ariel or Kitty Pride goes to the machine and phases through it and like short circuits it. Like she like walks through it and in the process short circuits the system so it breaks. She says, okay, we'll hide like in these trees and wait for whoever uh, operates the machine to come and try and fix it or see what's going on. And then we'll sort of pounce on them and figure out what the hell is going on and why they're here. So while that's happening, in the meantime, uh, the X-Men are investigating the crime scene and through Wolverine's expert senses, he learns, oh, Storm and Cyclops and Professor X aren't dead their scents aren't here. Like, their bodies, or, like, whatever residue from the, the burning up of the car or whatever, it's gone. Like, like their, their bodies aren't actually here. They've been dragged somewhere. So they've been taken. That's what he learns. And then we see Nightcrawler on top of, like, a giant, like, uh, lamppost, basically. And he's, like, looking out, and he sees, like, a, a car off in the distance. And he's like, whoa, I saw guys get out of that car, walk to our car, and then walk back to their car. They're probably bad guys. And so the X-Men are like, all right, let's go. And then, so we'll, we have this great action sequence of Wolverine, Colossus, and Nightcrawler taking down this car. And, like, Nightcrawler, like, teleports in and grabs the driver and teleports him out. And, like, Wolverine claws up the car. And Colossus, literally being this huge hulking tin man, like, grabs the front of the car and, like, like snowballs it into a giant ball and, like, throws it away. And it's, it's all incredibly fun, uh, highfalutin action. And, but then... After they think that they've beaten these purifiers that they found, it turns out there are other purifiers behind them in giant metal Iron Man mech suit kind of things who are like, ah, oh, muties, we're going to take you down. And then they start shooting at the X-Men. And when all hope seems to be lost and it seems like Colossus, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler are done for it, suddenly 
all of the metal on the mech suits gets torn off. And, like, we see these guys, like, in their underwear basically being like, oh, my God, all my armor. And then all the metal, like, like, like wraps around them and basically like cocoons around these two guys who originally had, like, wearing actual armor is now, they are literally, like, wrapped like a baby in metal as Magneto is revealed from behind. And he's like, hello, X-Men, we need to talk. <laughs> and uh, it's a great moment there. We cut back to Kitty and Ileana, who do see, who turn out to, of course, be more purifiers, come to look at the machine that she's, that she's short-circuited. In the process, Kitty tries to get the jump on them. She, like, phases into the earth and, like, moves through the earth to try and get behind them and sort of flank them. While she's doing that, though, she doesn't, she's not above ground, so she can't see that Anne is there with her gun, and Anne finds Ileana hiding, and Trank darts Ileana and pulls her into the Purifier's car to drive away from the X-Mansion. And so Kitty's like, oh shit, like, Ileana's just been kidnapped, and, like, has been found and kidnapped, I need to go after them. So just in time before the car leaves the mansion, Kitty Pride phases into the trunk of the car and is, like, hiding in the car as the car drives away from the X-Mansion. Now, of course... They have sensors in the trunk that Kitty didn't know about. And so Anne flips a switch and knockout gas goes into the trunk. So now Kitty Pride is also knocked unconscious, driving away from the X-Mansion. And as they're driving away from the X-Mansion, the other X-Men and Magneto and their captured purifiers are driving to the X-Mansion. And so it's this, this moment of like they almost pass each other as now Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Magneto, and those two captured purifiers are now back at the mansion themselves. And... They, they interrogate the purifiers at the mansion. Wolverine does a cool thing where he's like, I'm going to count to three. And he, like, puts his, his like, fist. Yeah. No, he, does, he, literally, he literally, he puts his fist, like, under the jaw of one of the guys. And he pops one claw. And he goes, one. Oh and then God. he pops, like, the, uh, like the, like the, the other, other side. side. So the only one left is the middle one that would go into the guy's jaw. <laughs> it's so rad. Oh it's such gosh. a great moment. Uh, Magneto does a little bit of uh, uh, enhanced interrogation, too. Sort of ripping apart metal and, like, like stretching their bodies and shit it's pretty intense in any case at the end of the day they learn some information and like one or two of the x-men are like should we have done that like have we gone too far are we too much like the bad guys now and that classic sort of like you know verbose soap operatic uh, morality question that sort of thing and that ends chapter two so we're now on to chapter three of four where it, it starts off with a fucking wild scene we're at the the twin towers on top of the twin towers on the roof Charles Xavier is being dragged by his X-Men onto a cross and nailed to the cross and then, and then crucified. So <laughs> on the nose. And, and, crucified with an X. <laughs> the T, man. <laughs> In this scene, the X-Men are drawn to look demonic and awful and and the overlaying text is all like you know like the devil takes what he does and like just very like like graphic sort of semi-satanic very sort of christian purification language and that sort of stuff and it is essentially revealed that professor x is the best way i've heard it described is on a tv a youtube show called back issues where they said that he was essentially being clockwork orange tortured basically like so he's he's hooked up to a machine and that machine sort of like like puts him unconscious in a, in a dream sort of state. And so in Professor X's dreams, he's, he's dreaming that his X-Men are, are crucifying him on top of the World Trade Center as Stryker is sort of like speaking to him 
that's and so he's hearing those words like while the psychological torture is happening in his dream world yeah and so that's going on it is then revealed that that storm and cyclops are also hooked up to separate machines and basically the way this works is that those machines connect their minds psionically to professor x's mind so when they get physically harmed he feels pain and because his mind is connected to Storm and Cyclops, he, his subconscious assumes that that pain that he is feeling is actually being caused by them. Does that make sense? Oh, wow. It's, it's, it's yeah. sort of confusing, but that's, that's, that's the simplest way I can explain it to you. So they're using the two X-Men to torture Professor X and essentially to psychologically convince him to hate not only mutants, but hate the mutants that he sees as his family is basically like if uh, because it is revealed at this point that the plan much like in the second x-men movie the plan is to hook up professor xavier to like like a, a second tier version of cerebro which is like a machine professor x uses to connect his mind to all the mutants on the planet so hook him up to a machine that he can telepathically connect to all mutants through and then force him to kill all the mutants like focus on them and their their his psychic link between them and just kill their brains that's what their plan is. They, they, want, they want to use Professor X to, to do this. And to make him like sort of comply, they need to essentially psychologically torture him to the point where he forgets who he is enough and hates mutants enough to be okay doing that. Does that make sense? It's just so interesting that like they hate mutants, but they can't get rid of the mutants without mutants. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Like, oh, for sure. Okay. And like in the movies, Stryker has definitely sort of that that really interesting vibe of like we hate you, but we're also like really fascinated by you, mm. and like kind of kind of want to be you, kind of but fetishizing, you know. And like we want yeah. we kind of want to be mutants, but like we hate them. So like those themes are for sure present here. It is also at this point that we get another moment of of child murder and another moment of sort of like just this is a very dark moment just coming up. It is, it is sort of the flashback moment where we learn Stryker's reason for doing this. Because, because it, this is a rather short graphic novel compared to some, so, like, it is a little rushed in terms of, like, like this is going to seem like a lot, but it's because they don't have a lot of space. Basically, a long time ago, he, he and his, he, his wife was pregnant, and they were driving, and they, had, they got into a, a, a car crash, and when they were in the car crash, Stryker's wife essentially went into labor. And so she was giving birth and Stryker had to do the birth and when when he pulled the baby out uh, it essentially looked to him what he describes as a monster at this point he didn't know what mutants were so he saw this and he, it was a monster he's a very religious man and he essentially believed that his wife gave birth to a demon and so he instantly kills the baby kills his wife what? and then oh my god yep and then burns the car and makes it seem like the car crash killed his wife and just born child and he survives and is sort of pulled from the wreckage now he feels i mean like it's awful uh but he feels <laughs> terrible about what he did and as he does he like sort of like we we see some inner dial inner monologue from him and he basically he says i touched bottom without even the guts to kill myself. Then I saw a magazine article by Charles Xavier about mutants. After months of torment, I knew what the monster was, a mutant. But could I have fathered such a creature? 
Was my life so wicked that the Lord sought to punish me through my son? And if so, why then let me live? I was evil. Shouldn't I have been condemned to eternal damnation? I prayed for guidance, and it was given to me. The evil, the sin, was Marcy's, not mine. She was the vessel used by God to reveal unto me Satan's most insidious plot against humanity. Our children, sorry, to corrupt through our children while they were still in the womb. The Lord created man and woman in his image, blessed with his grace. Mutants broke that sacred mold that they were creations not of God, but of the devil. And I have been chosen to lead the fight against them. From that lowly beginning came my ministry. For a quarter century, I labored in the wilderness, amassing phenomenal temporal power. Now at last, the moment has come to put those resources to use. Way to gaslight your dead wife. Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. But so that's so that's his motivation. Like that's that's this villain. is he's, he's a religious fundamentalist who believes that the Lord has sent him on a like holy mission to purge the world of mutants, which are sort of Satan's soldiers in the coming apocalypse that's what he believes which is really interesting because so much of the christian right in our world says things about like actual marginalized communities and that sort of thing well and, and dehumanizing right? absolutely like it was interesting i saw a tiktok today it was talking about marjorie taylor green and that she just started a podcast and same thing where like she was talking about dylan mulvaney mm-hmm. uh do you yeah. know who dylan love her love her to bits i this whole bud light thing is so fucking stupid and so murder taylor green was talking about that and like was deliberately misgendering her and called her a pedophile and like all of this stuff purely for being trans and like completely just like and again it's just like that's i guess that's how like genocide happens and like the first stage is always to dehumanize into other um so yeah it's just like yeah it's like, yeah, of course he would, he would, you know, do it that way. But yeah, it's just like, it's just so, oh, anyway, it's just so frustrating that that, that is actually happening in our lives right now. And it's not just like a comic book thing, right? Or like a thing that happened a long time ago. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very anyway, relevant to today. Sorry. No, absolutely. But yeah. I, and I think that sort of, sort of is testament, testimonial in terms of like, that's not the right phrase. It shows how this book is... Is it? Thank you. It is a testament to the writing of the book in terms of how well it sort of transcribes real world situations to the X-Men. And you can see what I meant at the beginning where I said that like, like mutants and X-Men work best when the allegory is broader than any specific group, you know, mm-hmm. like it, like it feels like a story that you can like relate to anything and anybody. And I think that's really neat. So moving right along with the rest of chapter three, we have a few sort of actiony scenes to set up different things. Uh, Professor X has to try out his new ability to see if he can kill mutants psychically. So they they force him to kill Scott and Jean, not Scott and Jean. I'm sorry, Scott and Storm, Cyclops and Storm, the two captured mutants. They force him to to kill them. Uh, and then we have a scene where basically Kitty has been found by the purifiers and been told by Stryker that, that they should kill her. So she's running from them in, uh, in the streets of New York. She's sort of phased out of the car and they've, they're chasing her through the alleys of New York, trying to find her and, and kill her in the process. She eventually finds a payphone and calls the X-Men. There's a, a sort of a bunch of pages of really neat action. She gets onto a train at one point and there, there is a moment I want to highlight, which is like a cop is basically on the train and, and he actually sides with her and sort of protects her from the purifiers as they come in. And so there is this moment of like, okay, so like in this book, the police are still sort of seen with a bit of a savior complex as opposed to a part of 
the problem mm-hmm. of oppression, which is kind of interesting and and pretty historically relevant in terms of the 80s. Mm-hmm. So from there, eventually, uh, like while they're on the train car, like the train lifts up and the roof gets pulled off and Magneto is there with the X-Men and they save Kitty and take her back with them. And essentially they devise a plan to break into Stryker's tower. They break into Stryker's tower and through various means are able to get the bodies of Cyclops and Storm, as well as the kidnapped Ileana, Colossus's sister. And, and like, essentially like, like they, they run into an elevator and Magneto pulls the elevator up and rips it through the roof and uses it as a thing to like, to to drag them away. It's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, honestly it is. It really is. Yeah. (laughs) Magneto is so fucking cool. Like he is for sure one of my very favorite antagonists. He's, his powers are rad. The way that like they, everyone knows how to illustrate them well. It's so good. In any case, we end the chapter with the revelation that once again, this is the one sort of frustrating thing about the book. Once again, Scott and Storm are not actually dead. And it turned out that the professor was clever, like, like was, was in control enough to hit them with enough of a mental blast that it made it seem like they were dead, but they actually weren't. And they were resuscitated and brought back to life, basically. So we now have the full team of X-Men back, along with Magneto as we move into the final chapter, which is that Stryker is going to give a huge, like, sermon to like a, a Madison Square Garden, basically. He's, he's at Madison Square Garden, full of his followers. He's gonna give this big speech. And in the back, while he's giving this speech, they're hooking up Professor X to the machine to kill all mutants. And so it's like, it's it's like visually and like just in terms of like the like the setting and the mood and the atmosphere, fucking creepy. Like it, it really gets to the core of what this book is about. I think it's really well done. This this like megalomaniac who's like proselytizing about how horrible humans are, I'm sorry, how horrible mutants are in his eyes. And at the same time, we'll like sort of end it by being like, and look, I did it. They're all dead. And I am your <laughs> savior. What? And whatever. Yeah. I'm God now. So that's what's going on. There's a crazy ass shot where like it's literally him on a, at a podium with like 50 light spotlights all on him and like a bunch of a crowd. And he's he's like, thank you. Yes. Hello. It is me. Stryker. <laughs> And, I'm, I'm, I'm so humble man yeah, of yeah yeah exactly I'm a man of god <laughs> so the x-men of course try and infiltrate and, but but at that point professor x is already using his machine and they're all like ah oh ah, my god and they're like grabbing their heads and like they're 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 hurt and they're like trying to get into madison square garden and they're they're pushing against professor x's powers you know that it's hurting them because they keep talking about how like their ears are bleeding and their noses are bleeding and stuff as as they're like pushing through magneto rips the roof off of madison square garden and like flies down and and literally says one of the best he says striker since you have proclaimed armageddon for homo sapiens and homo superior it seems only fitting that you meet your chief adversary face to face and it's really rad and cheesy and incredible and it makes me happy uh, and, and, and so, you know, they're arguing for a minute and then suddenly Magneto is starting to get affected by, uh, Professor X's like sort of mental blast that he's doing. And so like, it seems like the mutants are really failing here until Cyclops comes up with a plan where he tells Nightcrawler to teleport Wolverine right on top of the chair where the professor is and destroy the machine at the same time as Cyclops is going to shoot 
an optic blast and ricochet it off of a few different walls that he's like mapped out to then eventually hit the machine too. The idea being Professor X is reading all their minds and so he had to not point it directly at Professor X otherwise Professor X would know that and stop him from doing so so he had to like shoot it somewhere else and have it hit and the other part of the plan was that like Professor X was good enough of a telepath to know if Cyclops was going to try that or if Nightcrawler was going to teleport Wolverine but by having both at the same time it would hopefully distract him enough that one of the plans would would go off and it works and it's like it's such a cool demonstration of the X-Men and teamwork and like using their powers all together and it's really awesome yeah and so so they destroy the machine Professor X is free, at which point we see that Anne, the, the right hand of Striker the whole time, her nose and ears begin to bleed. Because she was a mutant. She was a mutant all along. Oh and, my gosh. Yeah, so the, this moment of like, oh, like the people who hate mutants the most are sometimes, or people who hate a the most are sometimes people who may actually secretly belong to them, and that sort of thing, uh, an allegory through that character, which I thought was a really neat a really neat thing to do and what's especially neat is this moment between her and striker where he finds out and he basically resents her and, and renounces her immediately and is like you're a mutant and she's like how could you do this and she says you don't care do you, uh do the lives of the faithful mean nothing to you i am set up i am set upon a righteous course and nothing and no one will turn me from it a true daughter of heaven would have accepted her fate your resistance reveals your true allegiance. Mutant Hellspawn, I deny you. I cast you forever into the abyss. And she he, he pushes her off of the stage and she falls and cracks her neck. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh God. And so at this point, we then have the final confrontation between everybody and all the X-Men sort of come forward towards the stage and they have essentially like a conversation. Like they don't like v use violence against striker. It's like this, this conversation moment between everyone and it's very powerful. And so I'll, I just want to read a quick excerpt from it where, she, where striker says those children and you X-Men are not human. And Cyclops responds by saying, says who you, what makes your link with he heaven any stronger than mine? We have unique gifts, but no more so than, and no more special than those granted a physician or physicist or philosopher or athlete. It could be due to an accident of nature or divine providence. Who's to say? Are arbitrary labels more important than the way we live our lives? For, uh, what we're supposed to be more important than what we actually are. <laughs> Chris Claremont writes... Very interestingly, sometimes. Uh, for all for all you know, we could be the real human race and the rest of you the mutants. To which Stryker responds with, Humans? You dare call that thing human? And points to Nightcrawler, who's like, of course, the most devilish looking of them all. And Kitty responds finally by saying, More human than you. Nightcrawler's generous and kind and decent. He has every reason to be bitter, every excuse to become as much of a demon inside and out, but he decided he'd rather learn to laugh instead. I hope I can be half the person he is, and if you have to choose between caring for my friend and believing in your god, then I choose my friend. Aww, nice. It's very beautiful. And then Stryker, Stryker says, Let these blasphemous words, girl, be your epitaph. And he grabs a gun and aims it towards her to shoot her. And then we see a bang. And then we turn the page and we see that Stryker was shot by one of the police who is like sort of doing oh. security detail for the thing. And Stryker dies. And that's basically where the book ends before a smart, a small little uh, epilogue at the very end. The idea being, unfortunately, like they had the, the cop savior be yeah, the person to kill Stryker. Like, really? 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of frustrating, but you and know what? Whole, like I, go mutants thing, and yeah, then like, a human then, cop. Ah, uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Overall, though, a really rad story. Really, really good story. The epilogue has a really beautiful ending moment where where they're at back of the X mansion with Magneto and Professor X and everybody. And Professor X says, Magneto is right. Like, I have been so, like, swayed by this experience. Like, humans and mutants, after Stryker, like, humans and mutants can't cohabitate. Like, we can't do it. Oh, wow. And the X-Men are like, that's bullshit, Professor. Like, how dare you change your mind on this? And Cyclops literally says, like, I won't accept it. Like, I will continue going after your dream, Professor, even if you've given up on it. Like, you can't you can't wow. just back down like that. And it's a really beautiful scene. Like, Professor starts crying in it and stuff. And, and, and he literally says, you know what? All right, if all of you want to give my dream one more chance, then I will too. And Magneto's like, fuck you guys, and leaves. Magneto's <laughs> like, I was this close. Yeah, this exactly. Close. This fucking close. This ending is really, really beautiful and very hopeful. But I think it really it, it's such 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 a good job at like showing the ways in which people, individuals, can change their ideologies. You know, it's not like like at the beginning of the book we had Professor X say that mutants are not a monotonous group. They're not like monolithic. They all everyone has different ideas, and that's fine. We're individuals. But even deeper than that the individuals can also change and can also have complex things and can go through trauma that like changes how they feel about things and can affect how they feel about things. And I think that's incredibly powerful to see like the pinnacle, the the character that represents the pinnacle of belief in peace above all can falter. And like, that's so cool to have your book end on that. That's fucking nuts. And that's it. And so that's, that's God loves man kills. That's the whole book. That's wow. story time. That's awesome. Lovely. I really like that. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you guys did. It's it's a, a really good mainstay comic of the series. So to end us with a, a very brief conclusion here, that's uh, that's the origins of oppression in the X-Men and in, in terms of mutants and comic books in general. And I want to just very briefly touch on this idea of something called a power fantasy. So when, when Superman was created, he was essentially created by two Jewish kids. And these Jewish kids were, like, not popular uh, uh, Jewish, and, and that had its own host of problems in the, in the 20s and 30s. Not problems, you know what I mean. They, they, they faced their own version of oppression. And, and, you know, and so they created Superman as this, like, beautiful, strong, god-like figure who, like, could solve any problem and could get any girl and... Like, superheroes have always been about a power fantasy, as have been about, like, you read this because you wish you could be it. Like, mm-hmm. Batman is the power fantasy of having unlimited resources, money, and knowing that you can solve any problem, that you're smart enough to solve any problem, and that sort of thing. And so the X-Men are a power fantasy, too, representing the fantasy of marginalized readers to gain superpowers that they can use to fight back against their oppressors. That's why the X-Men matter so much, because they offer an escapist outlet for those who are othered in society. They offer a fantasy where those who are persecuted have the power to fight back and to defend themselves, and hopefully to make the world a better place for other marginalized folks, too. That's the point of the X-Men. And, and so as, as we finish this, this sort of deep dive into my favorite comic and talk about why it matters so much... Uh, I think it's really important that we sort of end off here just to sort of say unabashedly that if we have any trans 
listeners, any any folks who listen to any of our episodes who who identify as trans, uh, we love you, and we're here for you, and we'll fight for you, and and it's as simple as that. And oh, yeah. uh, we we support you, and that's 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 sure. that's what this episode's about. That's what the episode's about. We support trans folk, and that's that's it. So, Katie, if you want to take us home, wow, what an episode! As always, DM us, send us an email, rate, review. Apparently, most of you listen on Apple Podcasts. News to me. Rate, review us there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, other than that, we hope you enjoyed Patrick telling us all about the X-Men. I certainly enjoyed it. I, I was picturing, as you were talking, I was, like, picturing the, like, different oh, panels. Trying yeah, to, like, I figure like out what I they would totally look like. like yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank you for listening to this mammoth of an episode, but it was so enjoyable. And we will see you next time on the flippity floppity. Goodbye. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> superhero outro. Is that a superhero sound? <laughs>